Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast, recorded here in Hong Kong just a few hours before the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics, an event advertised as being beyond politics, which promises almost two weeks of non-stop geopolitical commentary and analysis of the symbolism for every moment, mishap and medal won. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post, and this week we are indeed headed to Beijing but not exactly for the Olympics, because we find ourselves in the invidious position of knowing something is about to happen, but we're unable to say exactly what's happened until we're given a highly edited account of what just happened. And by that I mean the hugely symbolic appearance of Russian President Vladimir Putin in person in Beijing. He's not really in Beijing to cheer on the Russian team. You'll find out why they're not marching under the Russian flag in just a few minutes. It's the fact that he's meeting with China's President Xi Jinping, the first world leader to do so since the pandemic started, and more importantly, a personal meeting which will further advance the growing relationship between Beijing and Moscow, and the signing of an agreement on various aspects of defence, finance and energy, all of these details which will be revealed later tonight. And for those concerned about the escalating situation on the Russia-Ukraine border, this has led some analysts to say that Putin's appearance in Beijing is good news for peace, because launching a war during the Beijing Olympics would take the shine of China's moment in the spotlight, and Mr. Putin wouldn't do that to his friend Mr. Xi. Others speculate how this growing relationship between China and Russia changes the bigger geopolitical picture for the West. By the time you hear this podcast, there will no doubt be a cavalcade of analysis of what this new Sino-Russian agreement means. And a reminder to you that our colleagues on the Political Economy Desk, as well as the China Desk and Washington Bureau, will bring you the latest updates and the best insights and analysis at scmp.com. This week on the show, you'll be hearing from our colleague Laura Zhou in Beijing. She's been following the evolving political and economic relationship between China and Russia in the lead-up to this meeting. And we're headed back to Tokyo to hear from our senior China desk editor, Peter Langen, on the big news out of Tokyo this week, when Japan's parliament made an historic resolution on human rights in Xinjiang and Hong Kong without mentioning the word China. He's also got a very timely update for you about Japan's history with Russia and China, and how the prospect of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin becoming close friends and allies will have some deep resonance in Japan's political and military establishment. But first, given there's a good chance you'll be listening to this as the hot takes pile up on the symbolism created by Zhang Yimou for the opening ceremony in Beijing, I wanted to bring you one of our colleagues who is outside of the Beijing Olympic media bubble, but she'll be inside the Bird's Nest Stadium for the opening ceremony tonight. Get your skates on. It's a big show. The traditional cries of keep politics out of the Olympics 
have been buried in a landslide of coverage in the lead-up to the Beijing Winter Olympics opening tonight, and with the Western media contingent all locked safely inside the Beijing Olympics bubble, we're reading about all sorts of minor conflicts and symbolism and resonances that people are picking up on. You've got the Western journalists complaining about their food that they're getting served. There's the Taiwanese skier dressed in mainland Chinese Olympic uniform. There's a member of the Chinese team who's a full-time PLA soldier who recently had active service against the Indian forces on the Himalayan border. And of course, there's the Chinese-American skier who had to pick a side for these Olympics. And all of this amongst the broader campaigns for human rights in China, everything from Xinjiang to Me Too to Hong Kong, the focus on that event is zeroed in on tonight's events at the Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing. And our friend and colleague, Kinling Lo, in our Beijing office, is preparing for the somewhat arduous task of getting through the multiple levels of security to attend the opening ceremony tonight. Kinling, are you feeling the Winter Olympic spirit right now? Hello, good to speak to you again. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm packing my bags to go now, only to be told that I'm actually not allowed to bring my bag inside the auditorium later in the bird nest in the Beijing Winter Olympics opening ceremony tonight. I have been thrilled to attend such a big event, and I've already taken two COVID tests in order to be qualified to go in. Now, just uh, yesterday, Kinley, you sent me the list of things that you are prevented from bringing with you to the Bird's Nest Stadium today. Thanks to Google Translate, I see you are banned from bringing a slingshot, petrol bombs, radio transmitters, heroin, methamphetamine, as well as banned from bringing political signs or slogans. Have I got everything there? Is there anything else you are banned from bringing? Well, actually, it's a much longer list. We're not allowed to bring any food, any water, and not even an empty water bottle. Later in the afternoon, I'll be boarding a coach that takes all the media to the venue. And actually, I was just told that we'll be made to not bring anything inside the venue. So we'll go empty handed, phones in the jacket pocket. Earlier on, they actually didn't want us to bring any external chargers. But then later on, they changed the rules. So it has more or less been like this for the past week of what we were allowed to bring and whatnot. So Kindling phones inside the jacket pocket. And as we know from Previous Olympics, if you work in a media organisation, people are well aware of the draconian controls that the International Olympic Committee have over any image or video recorded inside the main stadiums of these events. What are these extra restrictions doing for you and your job? How are they impacting that? Right. The rules are definitely very strict for these photos and text and um, the management of journalists, especially in China. So under the COVID situation, basically journalists were divided into those who have went inside the so-called Olympics bubble, where they will only be allowed to stay in certain areas and attend certain competitions. And they were not allowed to be inside the city of Beijing in any way. So that that is what we call inside of the bubble. And there are, I'm sure, like hundreds to thousands of media who have flown in to the country to report on the event, but they will stay strictly inside where the Beijing Olympics Committee has arranged them to. So they won't get to see the city. And as for people like me and my colleagues who are going into the opening ceremony tonight, we are also kept strictly outside of the bubble, meaning that we won't need to go through any quarantine for now to be able to witness and be an audience at the stadium. But then we are also going to be treated as 
just audience instead of media representatives. And the thing is, even our photojournalists who aren't inside the Olympics bubble will not be able to shoot from their professional cameras. So our photojournalists will be shooting from their iPhones tonight at the opening ceremony. And footages and photos we can only get from, you know, official authorized media. I mean, I have no idea where I'm going to sit at the stadium. I'm sure it's going to be very far from when the torch does come into the stadium and when the flags and the teams do come in. And obviously very far from the heads of states, including our President Xi Jinping, who's obviously going to attend the ceremony tonight. Indeed. I'll have to check that list again for you to see whether you're allowed to bring binoculars, Kindling. Uh, maybe you can get those through. But obviously, you know, in an event like this, the Olympics, we will have you know, the world's media will fly in. And in the days leading up to the opening ceremony, they'll file what we call colour pieces, which would be, you know, whatever journalist and a camera crew would walk around Beijing, interview people, what they think. They can't do that this year. They're locked inside the bubble. You're technically a Beijing local. You're going to sort of commute in from where you live to the bird's nest. What is the mood around Beijing like right now? Is there some sort of sense of, you know, there's a big event coming, there's a frisson of excitement, or is it just another day in almost zero COVID Beijing? I think these days I've definitely seen those big ads promoting Winter Olympics as I walk by the streets or when I'm in a car, I do see these ads and promotions everywhere. But the thing is, for this year's Winter Olympics, obviously under the COVID situation and under Beijing's very strict rules controlling the pandemic, it will be a very distant competition for locals because there are no public selling of tickets. And to my understanding, basically no ordinary citizen can participate as audience to competition. So people who are interested can just watch from TV. But I'm sure that has a big impact on, you know, promoting this kind of sports and competition on the ground, obviously, because you know, if it's just about watching TV, then, you know, whether it's in Beijing or whether it was the Tokyo Olympics, you know, feels as distant. But from the sentiment of the internet, certainly people are thrilled that Beijing is the host of this year's Winter Olympics. And it's often said that these Winter Olympics are of particular importance for Beijing and its messaging to the world that it has controlled COVID, things are going well here, the rest of the world look to us for how we do things. But in terms of the sentiment on social media, Kindling, you said, you know, things are playing out on social media, there's a bit of enthusiasm. What are the big human interest stories that are being picked up, both by state media and social media? We see this woman who two weeks ago, not many people had heard of, today everyone hears about Eileen Gu the freestyle skier who is Chinese-American. She seems to become this real focal point for you know emotion for her choice of who to compete for in these Olympics. Right. I think it would be fair to say that Eileen Gu is the most known of athlete for China in this Winter Olympics. She has actually been catching some attention since back in 2019 when at that time she announced that she would compete for China for this year's Winter Olympics. So, so at that point, she, she started to catch some fame and she is definitely an iconic figure in terms of so many levels. 
best thing. She's a uh, half Chinese, so her her dad is American and her mother is from Beijing. Um, she's born and raised in America, and she's decided to compete for China. And under the current geopolitical climate, that certainly already has talking points. And apart from being a world champion in some of the free skiing events that she'll also be competing for in this year's Winter Olympics, she's also a budding supermodel. And so all of these have caught Chinese citizens' attention. Early on, actually, since um, she started to catch fame, there were some speculations among netizens on whether she has given up her American nationality since she's competing for um, China. She herself hasn't spoken on this matter, but actually the International Olympics Committee uh, recognizes dual nationality, but not China. So she can choose to compete for China in this year's Winter Olympics, but she could also, you know, switch back to the U.S. if she hasn't given up her American citizenship. So there was this discussion. Um, it was quite a split discussion where some people said, like, does it matter if she wins for us, then it's still our win. And there are also people who are more skeptical about it, who said, well, she is, you know, in the blood, she, she is an American. And so, you know, it's still not a win by our own athlete if she wins. So, you know, there's this very interesting discussion going on on the internet, which I'd say comes into the context of the greater, you know, tensions among U.S. and China that actually sips through um, their citizens on, on how they view the thing about nationality. And as we've seen, Chinese social media runs red hot with patriotic fervor when it comes to sporting events, but especially global sporting events like the Olympics. Is that the kind of mood you're getting right now? Is it all about Team China? Like it's very interesting that Island Gu has a, a Beijing link. It's what we would call a hometown girl back where I come from. So, you know, Barrick for the home team. There's a Beijinger at a very prominent event. She's a supermodel. There's all these events coming together in, you know, that that supernova of social media that's going to flow across to the West, obviously, what are some of the other sentiments you're seeing on Chinese social media right now? Is there any big sporting events coming up? Any great kind of moments of contest that people are looking forward to? I feel like that will come as competitions go on because Winter Olympic sports, whether or not Winter Olympics is being hosted by Beijing or elsewhere, it has traditionally gotten less attention than the Summer Olympics, I'd say. And in China, actually, China has not been a huge Winter Olympics participant in the past, despite being one of the countries who have got top medals for Summer Olympics. Uh, but it's not the same case for winter sports. So definitely for the Chinese public, they are not that familiar with the competitions involving winter sports. And I feel like there were promotions going on, but I think it will take them to see their team competing in those events for them to, you know, be excited about um, something that they're less familiar of in terms of sports competition. And nothing raises the profile of a sport quite like a medal victory at the Olympics. We can only hope the best for China's robot trained curling team and all the various other interesting little winter sports we only hear about with the Winter Olympics. Killing Low, have a great Olympics and we look forward to seeing how you file your stories tonight given the constraints on what kind of technology you're allowed to bring along. So best of luck. Have a great Beijing Winter Olympics. Thank you. 
Well, despite the very high-profile but low-impact diplomatic boycott led by the US, the leaders of 21 different countries will be in Beijing for the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics tonight. And while you might struggle to identify the leaders of Cambodia, Tajikistan and Egypt as the camera pans across the crowd, you can bet that news agencies worldwide will be hankering for that shot showing the face of Russian President Vladimir Putin at the Bird's Nest Stadium as the Russian team marches out. Now, tonight's events in some ways mirror the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi when Chinese President Xi Jinping made his appearance while Putin was criticised for Russia's human rights records. Of course, many of the many things that make Beijing 2022 a very different event from Sochi is the past two years of pandemic and the issue of an estimated 100,000 Russian troops and tanks massed on the border of Ukraine, threatening to invade. Now, I've read numerous analyses this week suggesting that the mere presence of Vladimir Putin in Beijing means there'll be no attack or invasion launched in Ukraine as Vlad wouldn't want to take the gloss of Xi Jinping's big moment on the world stage, showing off the not-quite-zero COVID success of China. And that, of course, has only served to focus more attention on the major geopolitical event happening on the sidelines of the Beijing Winter Olympics, and that is the face-to-face meeting of Xi Jinping with Vladimir Putin, the first in two years and the very first foreign leader Xi Jinping has met in person since the beginning of the pandemic. Laura Zhou is my colleague in the SEMP's Beijing Bureau. She's been reporting and analysing the lead-up to this historic meeting this weekend. Hello, Laura. Hi. Laura, you've been reporting extensively on this growing relationship between Putin and Xi, but also the growing economic China-Russia ties. This hasn't always been the case. Can you sort of just take us through how we've seen this this sunshine growing between Moscow and Beijing? Yes. There was a split over ideological difference between China and then the Soviet Union since 1956. And in 1969, there was a military conflict between the two countries that led to a hostile military confrontation between the former allies. But it also gained China some respect in the United States, which later paved the way for the normalization of diplomatic ties between Beijing and Washington. However, in recent years, China and Russia are facing more and more pressures from the Western democracies, which many believe have drawn them closer. And there's some suggestion that China-Russia ties become the closest they've ever been since perhaps the Korean War. But there's been, I guess, a variety of things. There's one thing where, you know, Joe Biden has gone to try and shore up the alliances that were possibly cancelled or otherwise spiked previously by Donald Trump. But it's also, is it a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing? Is there... Is the U.S. a common denominator in this China-Russian friendship? I think many believe so. And I also think Beijing has learned a lesson from the Soviet Union time when at the time during the Cold War, the Soviet Union also faced a strong pressure from the U.S.-led alliance with those Western countries. And I think this is also a lesson like China has been keeping in heart. And I was always taught in my foreign policy class that 
no country spent more money on studying how the USSR broke up in 1989-90 as China did, as, as Beijing's uh, analysts and legion of academics did. They've spent so much time studying how the USSR collapsed. They've used that really to shore up Beijing's policies going forward. We talk about China and Russia both being adversarial to the US, to Western democracies, but they've also got very different economic relationships. So how have the two countries deepened their ties together while also countering pressure from the West? I think one issue is Russia has these huge energy resources, for example, oil and gas that China really needs to sustain its economic development. And also, I think Russia believes that China will not use this economic independence as a weapon against Russia. And also amid tensions with the West, the two sides are also working closely in many new areas, such as the financial infrastructure, the military corporations in the Arctic, and even in the space where the two sides are planning to build a research station on the moon by 2035. So Laura, let's talk about this meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping expected at the sidelines of the ceremony tonight or during this weekend. Last time I checked, Russia was officially banned from international sporting events over doping violations. So Russian athletes can only compete at Beijing this year under the neutral ROC flag. So how come Putin is even attending this year's Winter Olympics? Is it just all about the symbolism? Leaders can still attend if invited by the head of the state of the host country. And in addition, she and Putin have maintained very close personal relationship. Before today, I think they have met each other offline and online for 36 times since 2013. And Putin even hosted a birthday party for Xi in 2019. And of course, Vladimir Putin is staring down the barrel of some quite heavy sanctions being threatened by Joe Biden. And I guess he is looking to Xi Jinping for a ensuring some sort of export trade, maybe some sort of financial kind of vehicle for, for people to move money, funds out of Russia should sanctions kick in. But what are you expecting? What are you hearing from your sources about what the agenda for Putin and Xi's meeting is this weekend. Earlier, Russian ambassador in China said she may prepare a surprise for Putin, but we don't know what it will be. But uh, I think according to officials in Moscow, the two sides will release a joint statement on international relations entering a new era. A new era for international relations on the same day that Dick Pound has announced that this year's Beijing Winter Olympics will be a new era for winter sports itself. I see also on the agenda is the idea of cooperation over vaccines. Now, China, as we've covered on numerous previous podcasts for Inside China, has developed five different vaccines. Russia's developed the Sputnik vaccine. Are you hearing anything more about the potential introduction of Russian vaccines to the Chinese market? The last time I checked with a Russian ambassador in Beijing, he said like the two sides were working really closely on the vaccine production, but there are many details the, the two sides have to work out. 
Understood. Now, turning back to the Ukraine, Laura, as you know, you know, the Western media, for whatever that term is worth, absolutely dominated by the issue of Ukraine right now. Is that kind of coverage being reflected in China's state media or even in social media? Are people talking about the Ukraine and Europe right now in Beijing? The, the state media have played up the tensions on the Ukrainian border with Russia, but most of these reports pointed fingers at Europe, but the state media usually blame the United States and European Union or European countries are involving this dispute between the two countries, which they say should not be in this way. And this dispute should be resolved between Russia and Ukraine, not with a third party involved. A very familiar theme out of Beijing, always asking for the bilateral negotiations rather than the interference of the big external forces. So Laura Joe, when this podcast comes out, the Winter Olympics opening ceremony will be underway. And as I say, there'll be a whole lot of TV news directors trying to pick out the face of Vladimir Putin in the crowd. We probably won't see your face on the TV coverage because you're spending all weekend waiting for that press conference to come out from the meeting of Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Laura Joe, we will follow your work on scp.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, it's Jasmine from the SCMP podcast team. We've got a brand new listening post newsletter this week. For the New Year holiday, we've got a classic Eat Drink Asia episode from our archives. It's all about the history and the worldwide influence of dumplings, from the Silk Road to Russia, Australia, Africa, and Korea, and how it all started a long time ago with the man who literally wrote the book on Chinese traditional medicine. And we're reviewing the science podcast that's announced it's no longer making new episodes. Now, it's all about fact-checking Joe Rogan and his claims on vaccines. And we're reviewing another podcast that's all about chefs talking about their delicious food and how they pair it. Not with wine. This is all about pairing food and music. That's the Listening Post newsletter. Subscribe at scmp.com slash newsletter or click the link in the description. Peter Langan is a senior editor on our China desk based in Tokyo. Peter, good morning. Good morning to you, Jared. Peter, a month ago, you were in the Foreign Correspondence Club in Tokyo. We were discussing some of the strident comments of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe about Japan's need to stand with Taiwan should mainland China attempt any military action. And this week, you know, a month a bit later, we have the Japanese diet has passed a bipartisan resolution expressing concern about human rights issues in China, including the treatment of its Uyghur Muslim population in Xinjiang and the situation in Hong Kong. Did this come as a surprise to you? Uh, it didn't come as a surprise in the context of all that's been happening in, in recent months. As you, as you mentioned, Shinzo Abe coming out with strident, blunt comments about China and Taiwan. And we've had other politicians coming out with similar commentary in Tokyo about China's activities in the South China Sea, its military intimidation of Taiwan. And it seems now Japan has added uh, human rights to this commentary, which puts it more in line with its allies, including, of course, the, the biggest one being the US. 
So one of the cynical assessments is that Japan is just doing the bidding of Washington, but I think there is more to it than that. Japan is a close neighbor and a huge trading partner of China, but it also seems to have genuine concerns about what it sees as China's expansionism, its military buildup, and its potential designs on Taiwan. And this becomes a potential threat to Japan's own territory. So we sometimes forget the geography of the issue in that the Japanese islands and then the the Okinawan chain of islands run all the way down very, very close to Taiwan. In fact, the closest inhabited island, Japanese island to Taiwan is uh, Yonaguni, and it's just 100 kilometers from Taiwan's coast, which again, for the geography, that's less than the distance from New York to Philadelphia. So all of this tensions around Taiwan is very, very much in Japan's backyard. And it seems Tokyo has decided to forcefully start pushing back on several fronts and human rights is one of them. Incidentally, just last night, Japan's national broadcaster, NHK, ran a, a fairly long feature program on the Uyghur people in Xinjiang with interviews with Uyghurs who were talking of missing relatives in Xinjiang and human rights abuses in Xinjiang, you know, all of that, which has already been documented by the UN and raised by many other countries, Japan also has a small but quite vocal Uyghur community and the Japan Uyghur Association put out a statement just this week welcoming the government's uh, resolution. So I don't think there is much of a surprise that Japan has come out with this to answer that initial question. But again, if you if you zoom out and think of Japan's, the context of Japan's relations with China over the last 30 or so years, then the statement is really a surprise in that Japan was well known for whilst being in the so-called Western bloc, it was always very quiet on issues like the um, Middle East and what have you. I mean, it was in line with the US and its other allies, but it tended to take very much a back seat. It wasn't vocal about these issues. It it was actually often criticized for just practicing checkbook diplomacy and not stepping up. But that seems now to, to have shifted. And Japan, as again, you touched on with Shinzo Abe and others speaking out, is definitely um, making its voice heard now. Peter, I can't help but think when you say that, you know, Japan, when you zoom out, this is a fairly new concept. In terms of Sino-Japanese relations, Japan's history on human rights inside China, and I'm referring to World War II here, are still hotly very emotive discussed subject in, in Chinese contemporary discourse. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, not only in China, but also in, in South Korea, Japan's activities in World War II. I mean, it, its occupation of the Korean Peninsula, its invasion of China, the atrocities we read about, Nanking is the one that comes up most often, is certainly something that is definitely a, uh, how do you put it, a thorn in the relationships with its neighbors. South Korea and China do often remind Tokyo of what happened in World War II. 
with Japan coming out with this human rights statement on China, I don't think we should be seeing Japan as some sort of beacon on this subject because Japan itself has got very strict rules on accepting refugees, for example, from countries that are in war or in other you know, forms of disarray. It has been heavily criticized for its, its lack of an open-door policy to refugees. Just turning back to, you know, the state of Japanese politics and how this issue is resonating in the broader, you know, Japanese political circles. Last week, we heard from our correspondent in Washington, D.C., Jacob Fromer, who said, you know, the one thing, the only thing that unites American politicians from either sphere of politics right now, from the Republican to the Democrat, the various colours within, is that tough action on China brings them all together. They can't agree on anything else, masks or Dr. Zeus books or whatever, but they all agree on tough action on China. Is that the same for Japan's ruling LDP party? Yes, I think that's a very fair description of not just the US, but Europe too, and and definitely, yes, in in Japan as well. I think one of the interesting things in the, the human rights declaration that Japan made is that it did cross party lines. And in fact, the Japan Communist Party also supported the resolution. So, you know, it's crossing party lines, including Marxist-Leninists in that front. The, the Japan Communist Party, incidentally, is an interesting animal. It reports that it has more than a quarter of a million members, which makes it one of the world's largest non-ruling communist parties. But on this issue, it clearly has a, a conflict with comrades in Beijing. But yes, definitely, as in the, the US, as you describe, the focus on China seems to be uh, one that's also clearly crossing all party lines in Japan. Whilst this politically is going on, I think we shouldn't forget that Japan and China are two of the world's you know, dominant trading blocks. And despite these territorial disputes, I mean, the one in the East China Sea directly between China and Japan and the concerns about Taiwan and human rights, both countries are fundamentally in the business of business and they need to keep each other, you know, functioning economically to provide jobs and income to their populations. I mean, this is obviously a particular concern for China as well. So I think whilst we have the the more heated political commentary, there's always a balancing act going on. And as we know, politicians are well known for making statements for public consumption while they're pursuing other communication channels and other agendas behind closed doors. So while it's getting a bit heated between Japan and China, there is, of course, on both sides, the, the recognition that they need to keep the economic wheels turning. Peter, as you said, the modern politician plays to the chorus. You know, there's feeding the 24-hour news cycle, lest that cycle feed upon the politician. We're reading reports. The original statement issued by the Diet was, quote, watered down, and the resolution doesn't even directly use the word China anywhere in the text. It also doesn't use the words human rights violation and instead uses the words human rights situation. Is this going to mollify sort of compromise in any way with Beijing at all? 
Yes, you're right on that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was lots of burning of midnight oil in Tokyo trying to figure out how to word this uh, statement. But I think the actual wording that, that has been used has already annoyed Beijing. I mean, Beijing's spokesman has come out and called Japan's resolution on these human rights issues extremely vile. So clearly, we've got this raising of temperature over the issue. And again, it's happening just as the Beijing Olympics is opening. So it's not something one would think that China's appreciative of in, in any way. Though, I, again, I, would, I don't wish to sound too overly cynical or conspiratorial about this, but I kind of wonder about how much was this all stage managed in the sense that, you know, the diplomats on different sides can get together and say, look, we need to say something about this and we're going to say something about this and then you need to respond and so they respond and the media picks up on it and becomes this this issue. But then behind the scenes, you know, there's other channels of communication taking place. I mean, China and Japan have got, of course, a long, long, long history of dealing with each other. They both sides have very, very experienced diplomats and a very deep bench in the sense of understanding each other's cultures and history. It, it did get me to thinking, uh, just to go a little slightly off topic for a moment, but of the, uh, you know, 50 years ago this month, the rabid anti-communist uh, Richard, President Richard Nixon showed up in Beijing and had this great big hug fest with his mortal enemies and a sit down and a chat with Mao Zedong, you know, and what became known then as the week that changed the world. So from being, as I say, rapidly anti-communist and anti-China, there was the sudden flip. And I think these things can happen. You know, there's always these back channels, these communications taking place and so on. Although it has got me to thinking that you know, Nixon was well known for practicing what became characterized as real politic or putting aside ideological differences with other nations to deal with practical solutions to political problems. And, you know, Henry Kissinger was seen as, you know, a leading light in that. But one could then ask, well, considering the current state of U.S.-China relations, are we seeing a kind of the real politic engine kind of running out of gasoline, so to speak, because we are now finding ourselves back at a point between China and Russia to a another extent in ideological confrontation with the so-called so US camp and its allies, including, of course, Japan. So, I mean, are we coming back to this fundamental ideological point where, you know, the two ideologies clash. It, it seems to me we, we are returning to that somewhat in terms of the, the commentary that is taking place and the arguments. Peter, it's a fascinating point you raise there. And of course, 50 years of Nixon going to China, it's 50 years <clears> since <throat> Tokyo re-established diplomatic relations with China. It was, as they pitched it, the week that changed the world. But also, very often, it's an American focus on, on what the impact of Nixon's visit to Beijing or, as it was, Peking has on the world with contemporary events. And I'm speaking, by the time this podcast goes out, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping will have not only sat down 
and and had a chat in a first face-to-face meeting in years, they will have put out a, a statement of agreement. As we know so far, it will involve cooperation on many levels. But how does this resonate in Tokyo? Because you know, there was the invasion of Japan into mainland China during World War II. There was also the Sino-Russian War. Everything in major media headlines right now is about Ukraine and Russia. And I think people maybe forget that Russia has another border on the other side of the world with Japan. So when China and, and Russia come together, how does this resonate in Japan? I think from a security viewpoint, it's certainly a, a concern that these Russia and China are seemingly, I mean, as some media are putting it, are being forced into each other's embrace by the the push of the threat of US sanctions and the pressure they face. So they certainly seem to be getting a lot more warm and friendly towards each other. I mean, I think in the, the sense also is that we shouldn't forget that China and Russia have also fought a war over the border. So it's not all sunshine and light between the two. But yes, you're right. I mean, with Putin arriving in Beijing and we expect a whole bunch of business agreements, trade agreements to be signed. I think that's of concern to Japan. But yes, the security side of it, because the Russian Far East, for example, borders the Pacific. It's a massive region. And Japan also has interests there in in the Sakhalin region. It is a very, very big investor in oil and gas fields there. And I, I think Japan must be questioning the potential trade agreements and particularly energy deals between Russia and China could influence perhaps Japan's own supply of energy from that region. But certainly, yes, it's a concern in in Tokyo. I mean, perhaps a sense of Japan also being surrounded, so to speak, uh, militarily speaking, as China and Russia form closer ties. In fact, the Russian ambassador held a press conference in uh, Tokyo last week, primarily to talk about the Ukraine. But he received a lot of questions regarding China and Russia and their military activities, and particularly naval exercises that have taken place in and around the region. And of course, Japan sees this as a potential threat. And that's also one of the reasons why Japan is spending record amounts of money on its defense budget. So clearly, this is a a concern in Tokyo. Peter Langan, I've just seen the latest update on TASS, the Russian news agency, talking about 20 ships from the Russian Navy sailing about in the Sea of Japan for, as we say, exercises. There is a lot going on. Of course, the whole weekend's uh, pages will be filled up with analysis of the Putin-Xi Jinping meeting, but it's really, really interesting to hear what's going on in Japan because it just seems like week by week we're seeing a greater level of engagement by the Japanese government, by Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida getting involved in this US-China discussion. Certainly, as we've said, the temperature is rising. But I think we should also though remember that Japan has got a, a very, very strong pacifist element among the public pacifism and its its commitment to non-aggression is a very, very important element in, in public discussion in Japan. You know, it's the only country in the world that was attacked with nuclear weapons 
And I think the commentary that's coming out from Japanese politicians, the more blunt commentary about the threat of China and for Japan to build up its own defense capabilities should be seen in that context that it's becoming a very serious issue in, in Japan for the fact that Japanese politicians can stand up and speak out like this on these issues to a public that is deeply concerned because of experiences in, in World War II and the atomic bombings. It shows how serious China's expansionism, as seen from Tokyo, is taken. Peter Langan, it's always an education and an illumination speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's episode, and a swift reminder once again that as we've learned to our chagrin many times, events can and will change dramatically once we publish this podcast. So do head over to scmp.com for the latest updates on all the breaking news. And I can confirm the analysis and op-ed pieces will be running red hot, not just in the wake of the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics, but of what is the main unofficial event happening behind the scenes that's dominating headlines. And that's the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. He's hoping you can stay positive and test negative as we surf the new wave of the pandemic and ride on in to the year of the tiger. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay in touch. Bye for now. Thank you.